you always had that little niggle in the back of your mind that anything could happen because some of our ships were hit by shore fire. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. Adversity has an effect of bonding people together. Tested our metal as a team. They held that man virtually prisoner. Terrible, terrible injustice. Submarine alert, surface alert. Riding out a typhoon in a four and a half thousand ton destroyer. We really feared for our lives. So we got back and we did a march, and I guess that's the memory you hold was all these people booing and hissing as you went did the march. Stations I went to that turret. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Welcome to Life on the Sea, a special spin-off miniseries of Life on the Line podcast. This miniseries profiles nine veterans of the Royal Australian Navy who served in either the Korean War or the Vietnam War. So why have we done this special miniseries? Well, the Korean War has become one of Australia's great forgotten wars. How much does the average Australian know about our Navy's contribution to Korea? And the Royal Australian Navy's contribution to the Vietnam War is often overlooked, when compared to the Army's larger numerical contribution to that campaign. But 13,500 Australian naval personnel were deployed on operational service during that war. I was then given the opportunity to meet the nine veterans featured in this miniseries. Despite their very different backgrounds, experiences at sea and careers in general, they were all proud to have served. And why they served and what they did should be remembered. Rather than feature the nine conversations as individual episodes on the usual podcast format, we at Thistle Productions thought it more appropriate to present the stories in this combined format for the shared moments, the parallels and the contrasts. After I made initial contact, the HMAS Sydney and Vietnam Logistical Support Vessels Association generously hosted me at the Frankston Naval Memorial Club over two days in late 2017 to record these conversations. These stories will be told over seven episodes. Korea, Beginnings, Vietnam, Collision, Combat, Korea, and Reflections. For our regular listeners who are wondering, we will resume our regular one-on-one veteran conversation format next year in Season 3. In the meantime, though, I hope you enjoy this production, honouring our sailors. This is Life on the Sea. In this first instalment, we will tell the stories of the two Korean War veterans of our nine. First up is Stan Goldsmith. When and where were you born, Stan? Born in uh, Narragin, Western Australia, 1927. Had either of your parents been involved in the Great War? Yeah, my father was at, uh, in Europe during the 1418 War. He fought on the Western Front? He was gassed in the trenches, or in a shell hole actually, and he was repatriated to England. Do you know which battle? No, not sure, no. How did that affect his health after the war, do you know? Suffered from it a bit after the war, but um, not as bad as some, I think. Some, some were worse. My, my father-in-law was worse. He had to go to Repat Hospital every week afterwards. Do you remember the Great Depression at all growing up, or were you just yeah. too young? Well, that was in the 30s, and I was born in 1927, so it affected us a great deal. Money was just wasn't there. Uh, my mother and father parted, 
and uh, I was brought up with mum and my two sisters, and money was very short. What did your mum do to try and make she, a living? She used to go out washing and cleaning other people's houses and ironing and washing and cleaning and all that. When you weren't in school, I imagine you had to occupy yourselves or did you have to help with the chores? Oh, or... uh, yeah, well, I had several uh, jobs. Like I uh, delivered newspapers and I worked on a baker's cart delivering bread on Saturday morning when, when school wasn't on, you know, outside school hours. Used to go around collecting bottles and uh, selling them because every, everything in those days was reused. They make a big thing about recycling today, but everything in those days that was usable was reused. You really had to. Yeah, yeah. Stan had no family members directly involved in World War II, but he does have some interesting memories from that period. You would have been 12 when war was declared? I was 12, yeah, when war broke out, yeah. Do you remember the announcement? No, I don't remember the actual announcement, but I remember it almost straight after when people were talking about it, you know. What was your personal reaction? I thought, hello, what, what's this? Uh, something that I didn't know anything about at the time. Not many kids of my age would have, because it was quite a while since the First World War finished. We used to hear a lot of tales about the First World War, you know. The war to end all wars? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was it like then, growing up through your teenage years with the nation at war? At first, it's a far-off concept almost, other side of the world, but then December 7, 1941, it feels a bit more close and real. Yeah. We thought at the time that the war wouldn't reach us because we were so far away. Everyone kept saying, oh, we're remote and it won't touch us. But uh, they brought up with a round turn when the Japanese bombed Darwin and Broome. They must have felt quite close, actually, if you were in Western Australia. Being in Western Australia, we didn't see it. But my wife can remember, she was in Melbourne, she can remember a plane flying over Melbourne and the American gun batteries firing at it anti-aircraft guns firing at it. Not many people remember that. We had, over in Perth, we had um, barbed wire entanglements all the way along up the coast, and it was a damn nuisance to me delivering delivering newspapers and not being able to get to some of the houses where I needed to deliver the papers to, you know, because of the barbed wire entanglements. So they were, weren't just one long string. They were up the street, down that street, along there, up there, down there, and you... To weave in you and couldn't, out. couldn't get through. What did you aspire to be growing up? Did you have any notions of what you might do? Well, I thought initially that uh, I went to um, Fremantle Boys School, the secondary school, and I took up uh, uh, metalwork. So I thought I might have been, I might have been a tinsmith or some such um, trade as that, you know. But uh, I never finished my first year. I had to go to work. When I was 14, I started work and uh, was actually in the metal trade too. <laughs> so it uh, sort of worked out. I worked for a firm that was making cans. They made all sorts of cans, and a lot of them were for the army, canned food, you know, like... Um, rations. And army rations and all that. The first job I got was uh, in a bed-making factory, and they were making... They had a contract to make army cots. But I never got to do any of that. They put me in the office. I was the gopher in the office. Didn't suit me at all. I, I was only there a couple of weeks and I, I left. I used to cook up schemes to go out in the workshop to watch the process of the manufacturing. <laughs> and so uh, I didn't like that much. But 
Then I got the job in the can factory. That, that suited me a bit better. Yeah. What ultimately inspires you then to join the Navy? I took up uh, sailing on the Swan River and uh, I thought, oh, this is all right, being a sailor is all right. So I thought then at the time that if ever it went long enough that I was going to have to join up, you know, or wanted to join up, I'd go in the Navy. So it just comes from a recreational passion. Oh, yeah, sort of, yeah, salt water. What year was that that you joined? I joined in 1946. Now we get to Stan's time in Korea. So the world feels a bit safe. The sequel to the Great War is uh, over, but then not long until you find yourself, uh, our country is embroiled in another war. How did you first become involved in Korea? What ship were you on? Tobruk. And what was your role on Tobruk? I was a leading hand in charge of electronic equipment, ASDIC equipment, or as they call it now, sonar, torpedo tubes, um, as I found out later, searchlights, onboard communications, gyro sights on guns, bofers, and uh, uh, squid anti-submarine mortar. And when were you there in... Uh... 1951 or? Yeah, 51, 52. You would have been attached to the United States 7th Fleet. Yes. And operating off the west yep. coast of Korea. Yep. So yep. were you doing patrols and that kind of thing? Yep. Can you describe some of those, um, any particular patrols that stand out into your memory or any encounters? There was one one patrol. It didn't happen to us, but it happened to a Canadian ship. It was going north up towards the Yalu River because there had been a communique about um, junks from North Korea coming down to feed and re-ammunition their troops. So the, this uh, Canadian destroyer went, started to go up there, worked up to 22 knots and hit a reef, uncharted reef. At 22 knots? Yeah. That'd be catastrophic. Well, ripped the hull open right down to the first turret or gun mounting. And uh, they managed to save it. They got it back to their watertight integrity. It must have been good. Because they got, got back to Dockyard and it was repaired later on. I want to give the listener a bit of a mental image of what Tobruk was like. Uh, can you describe the class of ship, how big it was, how many people? Yeah, it was a battle-class destroyer. I think in wartime configuration it would have had about just under 300 people. It had two 4.5 turrets on it, plus three stag mountings, which were... Stabilised tachometric anti-aircraft guns, radar controlled, and it had uh, four ordinary 40mm bofers and a uh, squid mounting on the stern, ten torpedo tubes in two banks of five. It was propelled by um, roughly the shaft horsepower of destroyers, around about 40,000 shaft horsepower. All destroyers were around about 40,000 shaft horsepower. What was your action station on board? My action station was in the operations room. Just off to the side of the operations room was the ACR, which is the Aztec control room, and that was one of my uh, jobs, was to look after the control room. That's where I had to make a beeline for when action station sounded off. Submarine alert, surface alert, aircraft, anything. What was the main type of contact you had? Was it a submarine alert or... An air surface alert, air alert, or was it just a big mix? For us, uh, it was submarine alert, but we knew that the North Koreans didn't have any submarines in the area, but we didn't know by intelligence reports whether they did or not, because if, oh, you wouldn't remember, but 
the North Koreans had MiG fighters in, on their uh, side with Russian pilots. So we thought, or the top brass thought, that they could have had submarines there if they supplied them with MiG fighters and pilots, and uh, they would have targeted the aircraft carriers that were up there, ours included, and we had to shadow the aircraft carriers. One part of our job was to shadow the aircraft carriers as a screen, and went, we had to operate all the time to make sure that there wasn't any submarines lurking around. You're the first line of defence for Sydney and the other aircraft yeah, carriers, yeah. 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 Because they found that the aircraft from Sydney and other carriers at the time were piston engine aircraft and they were better for strafing and land contact than the jet jet planes were. So the Sydney got quite a bit of work. The Sydney was a busy ship and you had to tag along in its wake, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. The only drawback with the Sydney was that it was that cold up there that the flight deck used to ice over and they couldn't couldn't fly off. Planes all suffered from ice too. So they, they had to abort quite a lot of their sorties because of the ice problem. Can you tell me about some of the bombardment work you would have been doing? Well, the main targets for bombardment were gun emplacement, ammunition dumps and stores, railway tunnels and railways themselves, like the trains themselves. Supply lines. Supply uh, by rail was a a good target, main target. When you're doing bombardments, you hardly ever see the results yourself because they are inland and you just can't see them by eye. So saying that, you cannot see them by radar either because all the land mass clouds your radar signal. So all you see is a land mass. You couldn't pick out a gun emplacement or a train. You had to have observers feeding back information to you so that you could uh, adjust your fire to hit that target. So you've got planes overhead feeding you data on distance and... Mainly range and bearing, and then they fire a shot at it, a ranging shot, and that tells the observers which way then you've got to move, left, right, up or down. And then in January 52, some of your targets changed from supply lines to water towers as they took longer to repair. Yeah, yeah. And these tactics were quite successful in crippling them. In most cases, they were, yeah. Yeah. You always had that little niggle in the back of your mind that anything could happen because some of our ships were hit by shore fire and you never knew when they would switch from firing at troops and stores and that on the land, whether they would then change to uh, attacking the ships, like the MiG fighters and uh, any other fighters that they had. Uh, in their command. You never saw very much, actually. But when when you're bombarding something, you're usually about uh, up there, the tide goes right out and you can't get close to shore. So you're probably, well, it might be 5,000 yards offshore when you're firing. Was Tobruk ever fired on directly? No, not while I was on it anyway. Lucky deployment. Yeah, I can remember one time when it was a little bit of a drawback in Korea, where it was that cold that I couldn't feel a spanner or a screwdriver. Your hands just froze up. Because they were cold winters. Well, up there, when, when we say cold down here, it's cool. But up there, it's biting cold. You can feel it nipping at your skin. It's that cold. 
we were able, when, when we went back to Japan after patrols, we always went back to Curie Dockyard. And in Curie, the Army was there as well. They had camps for engineers, signals and infantry. And they were mad keen on football. And so were we. And we had a good team on the Tobruk. And we always got a challenge from one of the one of the three army teams in Curie. And we had some very good games of football. They the army engineers had made an oval there called Anzac Oval. And uh we played several games there, quite a few games there actually. We won our fair share too. I think we won them all, actually. Did your country proud then? That, uh, and I, I always wondered why we were able to do it because they had training facilities, they had a ground and they could run on it. We couldn't. What I figured out later on was that they're mad keen these days about step fitness. You've probably heard of Yep. Yeah. We did it all the time. Up ladders, down ladders, companionways. Every day, or nearly all day, you were going up and down ladders. But that's just part of your job rather than... Yeah, um, part of the job. Yeah. But I never thought of it uh, later on as... Exercise. As a part of keeping fit. But it must have been because you couldn't run on a destroyer. Well, you could try, but uh, I used to do a lot of skipping instead, you know, like a boxer. And because uh, that way you didn't stub your toe or anything. <laughs> I tried running on the ship and it didn't work because there was ring bolts bolted into the deck here and there and you always kicked them with your foot and nearly broke your toes. Oh, so the Navy accidentally invented step fitness step exercise. Fitness. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There is another side bit about football too because near the end of the war uh, or getting towards the end when we were on the West Coast and... There was no charts available to us for the West Coast. That's why the Canadian destroyer hit the reef, because it wasn't on any chart. And uh, the tide used to go way out and just left little narrow channels. And the soil was a mixture of mud and sand, flat as a billiard table. One day we took the football team ashore and had a run on the sand and it was just like the MCG. It was beautiful. And uh, while we were there, the Americans had already found this out because they used to go ashore there and mark out a baseball diamond and play baseball. <laughs> and uh, they saw us doing it one day. So they, when they finished their game, they came across and watched us training. And uh, running and bouncing the ball was absolutely perfect because there was no wrinkles or anything. The ball, pure bounce every time. We were running flat out and bouncing the ball. And I said, God damn, that looks good. And so they tried it. <laughs> They'd never used it in uh, gridiron, of course. And uh, they were hopeless. <laughs> you know? It's important you can find these lighter moments. Yeah, yeah. They, they come around. Although you're not on a destroyer, you're not in the middle of the fighting. It's no picnic, really, because there's no warm spots or, or should I say, comfortable warm spots on a destroyer. Everything's steel, cold, steel. Making the cold of the Korean winter even worse. Making it worse. Um, we had ice on the guns and ice on the deck and all that sort of thing as well. And it was the first time in my life I've seen stokers who manned the engine rooms and the boiler rooms running to get on watch. Was that cold up top? 
they rushed to get on watch to get down into a nice warm boiler rooms and the engine room you know well it must make the melbourne winters much tamer by comparison oh yeah yeah well the sea up there used to freeze over and it looked like the back of a big fish it was all in scales and crackled as the ship went through it it crackled against the hull but uh then you in the back of your mind you think oh gee you know the hull of a destroyer is only about three-eighths of an inch thick steel. It's only about that thick. And <laughs> one of them coming through, you know. How much can it take? Yeah, yeah. And another thing was too, that if you fell over the side, if you happen to fall over the side or get into the water somehow, you're only given about two, two to three minutes to live because the water was that cold. You'll freeze to death. Did you lose anyone over the side? No, fortunately we didn't. That was one of our jobs, to pick up any flyers who misjudged their landings on the carrier. We would have had to follow them up and pick them up out of the water. That would have been a hard task. You have a, such a narrow time limit to catch up. To it them. is, yeah, yeah, because you've got to catch up with them first and then lower a boat because you can't nudge up to them in a destroyer and pull them out. Uh, lower a boat, go to where they are, pull them out, get them undressed into something warm within three minutes. Because you have to maintain a safe distance, the so three minutes to catch up, drop the boat, send the boat out, pick them yeah. up, put them in a blanket. Yeah, yeah. Because you've got to get hard yeah. pressed to make that. Yeah, you've got to get their wet clothes off, or so they'll they'll freeze. The, the clothes will freeze. So you could do that as quickly as possible, and if you're lucky, maybe. We'll come back to Stan. The other veteran who served in Korea is Douglas Symes Senior. You may remember him from the season two bonus episode, A Family at War with Doug Symes Senior. So when you rejoin, you're aboard HMAS Sydney 3, yeah. and you're at the coronation of Queen Elizabeth in yeah, London. Yeah, we went over there. We went over there to see Lizzie crowned and everything. That must be quite something, though, to be at the coronation of Britain's longest-serving monarch, and she's born... When is she born compared to you? She was born 18 days later. So you're basically the same age and yeah. you've watched her be the monarch. I saw it does, yeah, I saw her whole career. How's that been, watching that over... Oh, that's all part of the act, I tell you. It gets me. That's Doug recounting being sent to the coronation of Queen Elizabeth, which is at the end of that episode. As a teenager, Doug joined the family business as a butcher and slaughterman. He joined the Royal Australian Navy in World War II and was a lower deckman on a ship stationed in New Guinea. He returned home after the war, but found the best way to support his new family was being in the Navy. It was better pay and one less mouth to feed back home. So Doug rejoined the Navy as a butcher and, after the Queen's coronation, was sent on HMAS Sydney when it was sent off to Korea. We were supposed to be the, the ship that uh, escorted the, the new Queen on the capital city too. And we got to New Zealand on the way coming home. And they said all drafting appointments are finished. And the ship that, oh, good, I can't remember the name of that bloody old ship. Uh, she wasn't able to go to Korea. She wasn't able, wasn't airworthy. And they said that the vengeance, the vengeance wasn't airworthy. The Sydney took the place of vengeance. Uh, and that the Sydney would take up a place in career and everything and all these people that uh, 
inveigled their way and everything to get on the Sydney to go to the coronation everything and have the big world tour, they got left and they couldn't start. How are your memories of Korea? Because during its uh, second deployment, Sydney loses one of its pilots from its air arm when yeah. the Sea Fury crashed into the ocean and another McKinnon, pilot... McClinton. Was he a friend? Did you know him? Oh, I only knew him as a, a deck officer. They spend their time up on the upper deck or with their work. They don't m- mingle with the ship's company. The only time that you ever have any contact with them is when you go ashore. Because even uh, you have different messes, you have everything's different, separated, so it's very yeah. upstairs, downstairs. Yeah, that's right or above deck, below deck. So how was overall, from your point of view, the deployment to Korea? Was it particularly taxing or was it a more relaxed affair compared to what you'd gone through in World War Two? Oh, you didn't know what was going on. There's always something different happening. It, you, the program would be set up one way and finish up, but it'd be changed because you're... You're manoeuvring with the, with the Americans and you couldn't bloody trust them. You wouldn't know what they were doing. Stan Goldsmith almost found himself back at Korea too. I came back from Korea on the Tobruk. I'd been away for nine months, I think, and they drafted me straight to the Anzac, another battle-class destroyer, to go back straight back up again. <laughs> Not much of a break for you. No. And with a wife and two kids at home, you know, it's a bit tough. How old were your kids by that point? Oh, they were just starting school. And how long was Anzac at Korea for while you were on board? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure because I never stayed on the Anzac. I was only on it for six weeks while it was in Dockyard in Williamstown. And uh, I was uh, due to go to Cerberus to do a PO's course, Petty Officer's course. And all my class from the previous course were down there waiting to do it. And I was going to be shot up north again. And if I had have gone back up north again, I wouldn't have never become a PO because I wouldn't have had enough time left in the Navy for them to train me as a PO and get their, well, if you put it this way, get their money's worth out of me. I wouldn't have had enough time to do it. So I put in a request to be drafted to Cerberus to do the course for that reason because they were pretty good on uh, advancement in the Navy. If you were due for it, you usually got it. So you went to Cerberus, did the course and became a PO? Yeah, yeah. And where'd you go after that? I uh, went straight to the Warramonga and went back up north again. <laughs> and how long were you up north for? Uh, well, we were in the um, Beekoff British Commonwealth Occupation Forces uh, in Japan. At that time, we toured around Korea and around Japan. Warramunga and Aranda were both tribal class destroyers and we uh, were moved across to Malaya when the communist uprising was imminent there. And you're there for show of force, patrolling, yeah. general enforcement power. Yeah, yeah. And Doug was a butcher on the Melbourne during the Malayan emergency. So you stay on the Sydney. Are you still on Sydney then during the Malayan emergency? Uh, M- Melbourne. You're on Melbourne by then? Yeah. And you're the butcher on Melbourne? Yeah. 
So for listeners, can you describe the differences between Sydney and Melbourne? Because they're both aircraft carriers. They're both the same class. But Melbourne's a bit more modernised and it's up to date. It's got a bit more advances over Sydney. Not much. Not much? They just like to say that? No, they were... The only thing that was few things in the tactical world were uh, a bit different. The aeroplanes were different and the Melbourne had an angled deck where the Sydney had a straight deck. That affected their capacity for takeoffs and that kind yeah. of thing. And Melbourne was ultimately the flagship. Yeah. It wasn't long after that that Stan Goldsmith wrapped up his time in the Navy. And what is your day-to-day responsibilities now, your PO? Well, actually, they went up when I went to the Warramunga because on the Tobruk, I never had anything to do with the guns because I had enough to do with all the other stuff that I had. And the crew was already on the guns on the Tobruk when I went to it. They already had a full crew maintaining the guns. That's why I never got any work on the guns. I wish I had of because we learned a bit about them on the leading hands course. And I thought, oh, good chance to get on with this new technology. But uh, no, I missed out because they were already there. Went to the uh, Warramunga and I had everything on there. I had the guns and the ASDIC and the searchlights and the Bofors guns. and <laughs> All the toys at your disposal? Yeah, all the good toys to play with, yeah. So you had a blast, really? Yeah. And what was your next ship? That was it. That was your last one? Yeah, yeah. I retired after that. My time was up. I went to uh, civilian jobs, got my A-grade licence, electrician's licence and worked for a firm in Brunswick, and I did that for five years. And then um, I got a job down at Flinders, Flinders Naval Depot, Flinders itself. Flinders itself, yeah. Yeah, at the gunnery range, the naval gunnery range, and uh, I stayed there for 25 years. One part of Doug's story we did not cover in the Season 2 bonus episode about his World War II service was how he met his wife, Dorothy. It's a bit out of order, but let's tell that story now. Dorothy, your your yeah. late wife, she joined the Royal Australian Navy in 1944 Four, I think, yeah. as a steward. Yep. She served in Victoria, Canberra and Townsville as a steward. And her, she has extensive family history too. Her father was in the 37th Battalion That's AIF, right. served in France on the Western Front. Her grandfather was in the garrison in Hong Kong. When you signed back up to the Navy to provide for them, she really knew what you were signing up for because she, well, she, uh, she understood. I imagine that added quite a lot to your marriage. You saw oh, that as mutual understanding oh, of service. Yes. And she wanted those boys to grow up and be in the Navy too. And, and so they did. I didn't tell her how I come to meet her, did I? Sure. Just a little story. Well, as I said, I was a butcher and she was the officer's steward. And every morning she used to come down to get the milk from my refrigerator and I used to say, yeah, I said, well, you know, keep my eye on that girl. And then he actually been down there two or three days, and I thought, oh, I'll make a move. And I went out, and I had a tea towel in my hand. And for some reason, I don't know, I walked over close to her, and I flicked the tea towel and hit her on the bum. Oh, Jesus. And I thought it was the end of the world. She started to bloody howl and cry. How hard did you flick the towel? Oh, nothing. (laughs) Nothing. Go on. And then he uh, was enough to grab her attention. And I went over and I put the arm around her. 
Vadi and then she threw her head in the air and, and the next morning when she came down I saw her she looked into the shop door to see where I was and I thought oh well I'll go out and see and I went out and I apologised to her, give her a kiss on the cheek, and I said, well, I didn't mean anything by it. Away she went and got the milk, and I said, oh, well, you'll be down again tomorrow morning? And then again, and she come down for the next week or so, and I'd gone to the pictures in Queen Beanne. I think it was probably the last picture I'd ever gone to, it was a song of Bernadette and I walked into the milk bar. There she was and she was having a drink. I bought her a drink and, and that was it. And next morning she come over and we talked and carried on. And in those days it was very hard to get in and out of camp for there was only the busters. So if you got into Canberra you had to walk home about 35 miles. And we all used to walk home together and anyhow. And that was the end of it. That's how I got to know her. And that was it. And then we, we was friends and very good friends. And then the day the buddy paymaster come down and he said, look, he said, uh, you've got to go to sea tomorrow. I said, go to sea? He said, yep. I said, oh. So I said, I'd better see my girl. So anyhow, I said to her, we was going to go out the next day, and she said, go out, and you're going to see. She said, well, where does it leave me? She said, you told me you was going to get married. I said, oh, that'll be after the war is over. And anyhow, she just packed her bags. She raced into Canberra. She saw the old pastor at the church, and he said, no, you people are underage. He said, I can't. And uh, I can't marry you. And anyhow, he said, hang on, he said, go down and see the registrar of birth, that's and marriages. He'll talk to you. So she went down to his office that wasn't far from the church and she was standing there. She could only just see above the bloody counter. How old was she at this point? Oh, we're fifth, both of us 19. And then... <laughs> and... She, she said the girl behind the counter what she wanted. She wanted to see the registrar and she said, oh, we want a wanking appointment for them for four months. And she said, in that case, she said, oh, bloody stand here for four months. She was there and she was talking to this girl and she, and she wasn't backward in coming forward, that Mrs. Amon. She said, are you? Who are you? She said, oh, I'm, I'm the deputy register. He said, what do you want? And she said, while well, she was here, he said, oh, I can't help her. And at that moment, the registrar walked into the office and said, what's a confuffle going on here? Because there's a bit of race bullshit. And then he, he came over and he spoke to her. And, you know, she told us she'd had a pretty rough life and she could see that she had a good life in front of her. And she said, that's a man I want to marry. And he said to her, the registrar, he said, if you will promise me that you will marry and stay with that man forever, he said, I'll sign the paper for you. And she died in my arms 66 years later. So there you go. That's a beautiful story with a beautiful ending. <laughs>
not so beautiful, a very bloody, very lonely one. But not to worry, I got my family, you know. They give me the shits at times. That's family. Yeah, I know. Well, Doug, you've had an incredible life. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your story with me today. I hope you enjoyed episode one career of Life on the Sea. Next time, you'll meet the other seven veterans and find out how they came to join the Navy and some of their early days at sea before getting into action at Vietnam. Stick around, we have some exciting and insightful stories to tell in this miniseries. If you're interested in learning more about the history of the Korean War and Australia's involvement, look up the Season 2 bonus episode, The Korean War with Michael Kelly, for a wonderful and insightful conversation between the Australian War Memorial historian and Angus Horden. Never miss an episode. www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com And join the conversation on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at L-O-T-L Pod. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening. And lest we forget... <laughs>